For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona is making some emergency relief grant funding available to local artists. Find out how the Heirloom Farmers Market at Rito Park is surviving and evolving during the pandemic. Food writer and former EMT Jane Stern returns to the show to talk about experimenting in the kitchen with dollar store ingredients. And what could be called a very short story from Aurelie Sheehan's collection, Once Into the Night. That's all next here on Arizona Spotlight. As many performing arts groups and individual artists in and around Pima County struggle to make ends meet during the pandemic, the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona is offering some relief. $50,000 in emergency relief grants are being made available through an application process that is now open. I asked Eva Romero, the board president for the Arts Foundation, to tell us more. That is money that has come straight out of the Arts Foundation's coffers, per se. And the Arts Foundation's coffers are made possible by the money that comes from the city and the county. And that is made possible by taxes that people pay. Um, And I think that's a really great point to make because um, if we want to increase in the future funding for the art in our region, tax sources are typically where that comes from. The Arts Foundation is categorizing this money, this $50,000, as emergency relief grant funding. So who could qualify? There are actually two different funds that the Arts Foundation is contributing to. Uh, One of them is managed by us. That's the Pivot Grant Round. And the other one is managed by the Arizona Commission on the Arts. And that's the Emergency Relief Fund. So the Emergency Relief Fund is really not exactly a typical grant round. It's just a matter of saying... Um, I'm an artist or an arts educator, Um, you know, my work is art, and I am now suffering loss of income. That's all you have to show for uh, for that, to have access to those relief funds. Uh, The pivot grant that the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona is managing is a little bit different because it's actually a project grant. So it's a way for us to stimulate artistic production even during all of the challenges that we're having to face uh, in order to accommodate for social distancing during COVID-19. The window of opportunity for this funding money has just opened. What advice would you have to people who want to apply and how can they begin the process? People can find everything out about the process, including eligibility and how to start the application by going to artsfoundtucson.org. I would definitely advise people to apply as quickly as they can, because clearly there is lots of need. I wish that we could make available much, much more money than we are. But yes, the sooner that people can apply for this fund, the better, especially those who already have these wheels in motion. I know there are lots of artists and arts organizations who have been trying to figure out how they can bring art to the people, despite not being able to have in-person events. So 
we just want to support those efforts because it's more important perhaps now than ever for people to have art in their lives so they can continue to feel connected to each other and express the human spirit. The thing that I've learned in this role more powerfully than anything is that artists and arts organizations in Tucson and Pima County are excellent at solving problems in our community. And I have no doubt that what artists and arts organizations will be able to do with a little tiny bit of support, this you know, bit of support that we can offer that I wish was so much more, will have significant impact on the community and on uh, people's lives and people's quality of living and mental health. A lot of people are saying right now, oh, we don't have it's not time to fund the arts, and I really beg to differ. I think that the arts are one of the best things that we can fund right now in terms of just supporting the community at large. Artists who are interested in the application process should go to artsfoundtucson.org. I spoke with Eva Romero, the board president for the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona. Farmers markets, grocery stores, and pharmacies are considered essential services in this state and will continue to be open during the COVID-19 pandemic. Until April 30th, Arizonans receiving food assistance can double their SNAP dollars without limit at some of these locations. We'll find out how that can help support local farmers in this story, produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. At the end of February, the Heirloom Farmers Market at Rito Park was packed. Customers walked shoulder to shoulder in both directions. A band played music on stage. With the rise of the COVID-19 pandemic, the market has changed. Here is Zoe Anderson, the Director of Advancement for Heirloom Farmers Markets, over the phone. The vibe of the market has changed a lot but we have been able to do what our mission is and just still offer access to fresh local food. Now the scene is different. As farmers cover their faces with bandanas and masks, they're required to pre-package food items to reduce contact. If you go to the market right now, we have everyone spaced out. Some of the vendors are offering curbside pickup. Some people are also offering delivery services and pre-ordering online. We even have been accommodating some of those people who do have compromised immune systems to take their information over the phone and then work with the farmers to get the food that they need. The Heirloom Farmers Markets Network includes five locations with 150 businesses, ranging from farmers to artisans. While the market in Green Valley has closed, four other locations remain open, and the majority of food vendors are still selling fresh produce. Only crafts and prepared foods are not on sale anymore. People want local, fresh, organic food, and when you get to meet your farmer, it's just some of the best feeling that you can experience because it's you're getting a food connection. You're also getting a more nutritious product because you know it's getting grown, not just locally, but it's picked within that 24 hours of you buying it. So you get a longevity of your produce. Here is Laura Brem, who sells produce from local farmers through her small business called Laura's Local. 
there's been a pretty huge drop in customers, but we're still selling about the same. We're finding that people are buying a lot more at the market right now than they were before. So that's nice. They're being supportive. Before the pandemic happened, you know, we were selling to probably like 15 different restaurants and resorts. So we've had to drastically reduce the amount that we're producing and try to come up with some new ways to sell our products. Anderson says farmers markets play a key role in growing and developing local food systems and small businesses. We're a business incubator. It's a place where people bring ideas of what they think will sell and they put it to the test. Um, a farmer's market is a great place to get feedback from your customers, to see if people even like your product, and it's a way to build your brand. Andrew Karhoff, a co-founder of the Aravipa Creekside Growers Farm, started his business as a backyard gardener six years ago. Now he's a first-generation full-time farmer selling mushrooms and seasonal produce. Originally, I thought it was just going to be a hobby, just like backyard gardening with the mushroom. But then I saw that no one was doing it and people wanted the mushrooms. So we started taking those to the market first, and then the demand was there. So that's why we decided to do it as a business. Launching new businesses is just one part of what farmers markets do. Another is building a diverse community around food, which in practice means finding ways to appeal to low-income consumers so they could also shop at the market. Again, here is Zoe Anderson. We are working with a local organization called Pinnacle Prevention, and the program is Double Up Food Bucks Arizona. And what that means is a SNAP user can come to the market and they can match up to $20, SNAP dollars, and that extra 20 can be spent directly with only local farmers on Arizona produce. A customer named Aubrey receives food assistance to buy groceries for her and her son at the market. Food stamps is great because it provides me money to spend on food, so I get a little more options instead of having to like really budget there. I also really like how they match the money we put in. So if I spend $20 on food stamps, I get $40 in produce. That's the main reason we come here every week. Until April 30th, there are no limits to the amount of food bucks that can be doubled. Anderson says that although this brings people to the market, it's not always enough to make them regular customers. There's still a missing piece of education because a lot of people, as much as they can have access to food, they don't always know what to do with it. Again, here is Aubrey. If you're not sure what to cook, you can ask the people selling the produce or the farmers what they'd recommend, what's in season, how to prepare it. That's all been really helpful for us. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Heirloom Farmers Markets had to close its educational and entertainment programs and focus its efforts on essential functions. It's looking for ways to support small businesses and also provide access to fresh food for customers, Anderson says. The market website heirloomfm.org has a list of farmers who provide services, including deliveries, pickups, and pre-orders. We're not going to close our doors, so we'll just keep brainstorming ways to make our food accessible for everyone. That story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. In the next episode, the University of Arizona is closed during the pandemic, but many students are still living here. Find out how the campus food pantry is staying open to serve students and staff next week on Arizona Spotlight.
In the late 1970s, America's tastes were changing, and a more casual approach to dining out meant that places like truck stops and diners started receiving critical attention. Jane Stern and her then-husband and still-writing partner, Michael Stern, created a bestseller with road food, for which they spent many happy hours eating their research. Decades later, Jane Stern is still known for her outspoken opinions on food. So I decided to call her and ask how she's getting through the current pandemic. She may be getting a little too experimental in her quarantine kitchen. I found this wonderful store, which is about 20 miles from my house. And it's it's like kind of just everything. It's ugly tchotchkes and food and toilet. Well, there's no toilet paper anymore, but whatever. And they have like the weirdest like selection of food. First of all, nobody's ever in there and everything is a dollar. So I've realized in the last two weeks, I have stocked up on canned Bernays sauce Craft hangy spaghetti dinners, which I think were discontinued around 1985. <laughs> um, mint jelly, I have enough for like a hundred lamb roasts. Um, European shortbread cookies, which unfortunately suck. And now they have a ton of like Easter egg candies. So I bought bags of chocolate Easter eggs <laughs> so I could have East chocolate eggs with Brunei sauce and tangy spaghetti on the side. I, I'm not a very good survivalist. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. Um, so remind our listeners where you live. Yes, I live in Ridgefield, Connecticut, and Ridgefield is about an hour and a half from NYC, but you wouldn't know it because it's very rural and pretty and does not look urban at all. Since the situation in New York has gotten so serious, is that impacting Connecticut? Oh, Mark, you know, this <laughs> I've been training for this my entire life. I mean, there is nothing in the world that I like better than staying home, not talking or seeing anybody, and reading a book or playing with my dogs. I was an only child of a single working mother. So when I would come home from school, you know, in the fifth grade or seventh grade, nobody there, nothing to do. So I'd sit around and I'd read a book or I'd draw pictures of something. Then I grew up into this fairly misanthropic, introverted loner, not quite on the level of the Unabomber, but I mean, there is nothing I like better than being alone. So this is so perfect for me. You have no idea. Well, going back to your uh, to your very diverse stockpile of foods that you've been collecting lately, has <laughs> like that in- yeah has that <laughs> inspired you to um, be experimental in the kitchen? Yeah, actually, I'm probably going to weigh 3,000 pounds by the time this virus is ever under control because I, I should open a soup kitchen because I have been making soup like there will be no soup for the next 100 years, and I better make it and freeze it. And then I've been making sugar cookies and sesame seed cookies and I got onto a brownie kick last week, and I realized after I made five different brownie recipes, 
said, I don't like brownies because I kept thinking, well, this sucks and I hate this and what's wrong with this one? So I think brownies are just something I think I remember that I wish I had when I was a kid, but in reality, I don't like them. So I'm back on my sugar cookie and, oh, well, I don't tell anybody because I don't speak to anybody, but I made three different jello molds this week, which were the most wonderful things in the world. One was under the sea salad, which is lime jello beaten with cream cheese and cool whip. And then you put crushed pretzels in it and miniature marshmallows and refrigerate it till it's solid. And then you unmold it. So that was the first one. The second was called Spangle Cranberry Deluxe. I didn't have cranberry jello, so I used raspberry jello with cranberry juice, Cool Whip, miniature marshmallows, and M&Ms, because I just had a lot of them. So, I mean, these are kind of like if Michelangelo made jello instead of painted the Sistine <laughs> Chapel, I mean, they're really? really complex and visually stunning. Mm-hmm. The first thing I think of, though, maybe is I might have a texture problem. I mean, crumbled pretzels in jello. All right, to be very um, pragmatic, dogmatic, whatever the hell Blunt, the word perhaps. Is, you're not supposed to put pretzels in under the sea salad. You're supposed to put canned pear halves in it. <laughs> you know, and I can't say pretzels and canned pear halves are anywhere in the same universe, but you know, when I'm cooking for myself, I'll throw in whatever I feel like eating and I like pretzels and I didn't have canned pear halves. So would that would you like that if it had the pears in it instead of pretzels? Mm, I wouldn't sneer at trying either one, but... You, um, you have a a mishigas, if I can use an old Yiddish word. You have a thing about texture, am I right, with food? I guess, Jane, I've always prided myself on being someone who, who supposedly knows what I like. I discovered last time we talked that you are one of those people who's designated as a super taster. I am. So would you say that flavor overrides texture for you? Um... No. Super taster is somebody who's born with double the amount of taste buds of a normal human being. There are super tasters, there's normal tasters, and then there are basically non-tasters, I think, who are the people who probably eat Vienna sausage or Spam or something. I mean, they just eat. They don't taste very much. But a super taster is not that you have an incredibly high sensitivity to texture or even taste. It's just that there are some foods you cannot stand, like anything bitter, like broccoli rob, or cocktails with Angostura bitters in it. I mean, bitters to a super taster are like cyanide. I mean, there are just some things you cannot eat. Another one is artificial sweeteners. So if somebody tries to con me into giving me a Diet Coke instead of a Coke, you know, I will spew it all over the place. It's Yeah, that's what being a super taster is like. 
I was so fascinated to find out that you have a whole other career and a book that you wrote about it that became a movie starring Kathy Bates playing your role. Oh, yeah, she's so great. It's called Ambulance Girl. And I wonder if in a nutshell you can describe how that book came to be. Okay, when I was 52 years old, which was 22 years ago, I was the most neurotic hypochondriac in the entire world. And I would be the kind of person I would sit and like stare at a freckle on my hand for like two days and think I had, you know, freckle cancer or something. So I got so sick of myself. I mean, I literally, when you get sick of your own self, it's time to do something. So I drove to the local small town fire department, volunteer fire department, and I went in and I said, I think I'd like to be an EMT. And they looked at me like I was completely crazy. And literally they said, you're too old, you're too fat, and you're too fancy, because I had on some fancy silk blouse or something. And I knew if I became an EMT, it would be like jumping into the deep end of the swimming pool, that I would either die the first day I was on a call, or I would get over all of my neurosis. And I got over all of my neurosis. And I stuck to it for 21 years. (laughs) That is so amazing. I mean, when I think about stories of people confronting their fears in that direct of a way, about the only other uh, example from pop culture I can think of is when G. Gordon Liddy wrote about eating rats. Um, I mean, <laughs> you really... You well, it, it comes from a visceral <laughs> place because as someone who's it's... somewhat medically phobic myself, I, I cannot imagine taking on that responsibility and plunging myself into that world. It's a long course to become an EMT. It's months and months and months, and then you have to be an intern at the hospital, and you don't just sign up and do it. I do have, and this is going back to the coronavirus, I have a hazmat suit from my days as an EMT. And have you gotten it out of the closet and tried it on? I have one that is sort of a mess because it's one I used to wear, and I have a pristine one that I haven't opened, and I also have which is almost as good as a hazmat suit. It's the um, OBGYN suit they give you for delivering babies in the field or in the ambulance. And it's like head-to-toe covering, you know, because when a baby comes out, it's not the most sanitary thing in the world. So, But, you know, when I went out to the grocery store that I was telling you about two weeks ago, I was the only person who had a mask and gloves, and people were looking at me like I was a lunatic. So I can imagine if I went out in the hazmat suit what what I I would contend with. I spoke with author, food expert, and former EMT Jane Stern from her home in Ridgefield, Connecticut. In her short story collection, Once Into the Night, Aurelie Sheehan revisits a form she has explored before, the very short story. The 57 stories the book contains range in length from two sentences to three pages. Most are written in first-person perspective. Sheehan is a professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona and a receiver of the Catherine Doctorow Innovative Fiction Prize. This story is called The Suit. 
I wore a particular 50s-style suit for almost a year when I was in graduate school. I realized what was going on one afternoon when I was standing in the English department's mailroom. I was a graduate assistant at the time. A man who had the name of another man was in the room with me, getting his mail. Soon he would die. He was loved and appreciated at that school, though he worked for limited and unfair pay, the adjunct scale. I chose to wear the suit because there was a scale, and on one side was success and allure and effect, and on the other side was rumpledness and sorrow and suicide. The suit I wore was my mother's wedding suit. She wore a suit rather than a white dress that singular day. The wedding took place on the army base in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and I was in her belly already, a firmament of my own behind the still flat skirt panel, behind the small bouquet. She also wore a hat. Her mother was there at the wedding, and her mother was also wearing a suit and a hat. The suit I wore for so many days in a row was comprised of a slim skirt and a short boxy jacket with half sleeves and one large mother of pearl button at the neck. The important thing about this suit is that it clung and held, trimming you up and making sure you were all in one place, headed in the right direction. You couldn't actually move your arms that much. You couldn't reach too far for things. And of course, you couldn't walk forward with great strides either, but needed to almost shuffle forward. High heels were best, obviously, or little Chinese slippers, created a nice sound with the shuffling. Hard to find the right blouse to go underneath, not too billowy, or the exact right hairstyle, something contrasting but also quaffed. But if you got those things right, you could pretty much remain in neutral and feel satisfied. In those days, I also slept in the suit, in a coffin. Actually, it wasn't a coffin, but a single bed with a thin mattress and very high sides, so I did have to stumble in, straining the suit as I flipped myself into the horizontal resting place. I held my arms to my body. I didn't wear shoes, but kept my shoes, pumps or flats, on the floor at the foot of the bed. Sleep wasn't always as restful as it could have been. R.L.E. Sheehan read that story from her collection Once Into the Night, published by FC2 and the University of Alabama Press. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.